Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Our reading will begin in verse 22. This is the second time we come to this event of Paul proclaiming Christ in the city of Athens. If you are interested in having missed it, the first sermon is available online. We take a narrower focus today and look at the speech that finds its boundaries in verse 22 through 31. Let us proceed in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we now have opened your word, Lord, and upon this occasion of its public reading and preaching, we ask and pray for your help. We pray that as the sower is among us, that you would make the soil good and ready. That indeed, Lord, the seed of your word would find good soil in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. We pray, Lord, that your spirit's work among us would be mighty, would indeed overcome all the deficiencies and deficits that we bring with us in our great weakness, our dullness, even our hardness. O gracious God, who gives not according to our deservings, but according to your great mercies, for the honor of your dear Son and his work, help us now hear, believe, obey. Help us understand, illuminate before our soul the truth of your word and the glory of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 17 Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is God's word. 
When the Apostle Paul is given opportunity to speak at Athens, he speaks to that which he always spoke. He speaks to the salvation of man in and through Jesus Christ. When it is his turn, Paul does not engage in the hundred or other so conversations public men might engage in. Yes, men of goodwill even engage in these, either for their own improvement or the improvement of their cities or the improvement of institutions. But Paul avoids all of those conversations when it, his, when it is his time to speak to the leaders of one of the leading cities. He does not speak of taxes. He does not inquire about the best schools of philosophy. He does not reflect on geopolitical tensions. He does not even ask about the best places to eat in Athens. When Paul finally does speak in Athens, he goes right to the chief end of man, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, Paul is not opposed to men giving their attention to temporal things. Every community of mankind, everyone, must figure out how to keep lions from eating their children, how to bring water as close to their homes as possible, how to keep their enemies from taking their land. Paul would not begrudge men these conversations. He is not a otherworldly ascetic. Mankind's problem, though, is not having an interest in things which maintain life. Mankind's problem lies elsewhere. Mankind's problem is his lack of interest in God, who is the very fountain of life. Man puts so much energy and so much effort in keeping his life, but he is strangely careless in serving the one who is the very source of life, the one to whom he must give an account for his life. Man should see in his interest for food, shelter, and security, how precious life is to him, how occupied he is with his life. This should raise his thoughts to God, the giver of life. Man's pursuit of God and desire for God and love of God and honor of God should far exceed his interest in the temporary, temporary things of life. But tragically, man often has no interest in God. Or man's interest in God is darkened by an ignorance through which he excuses himself from giving God what he owes to God. Beloved, this is why Paul speaks up at Athens. Paul finds the leading men of the city to be very religious. He finds them surrounded by objects of their worship. They have altars and temples and statues and sacrifices. They even have priests, pagan priests. They appear to be above average, these Athenians, in their interest in divinity. But here's the problem. Their instincts have not brought them to serve the living and true God. They do not know God, nor do they adore God. 
nor do they obey God. In short, they neither glorify nor enjoy him, though they are very religious. What do they glorify? What do they enjoy? Gods who are not God. Gods they have made with their own hands. You see, in Athens, there were not only temples and statues of gold, silver, and marble representing the 12 gods of the Greek pantheon. There were also altars erected all throughout the city to the most admired traits of men. There was an altar to pity, capital P, an altar to shame, capital S, an altar to rumor, an altar to energy. As one historian put it, every desire, passion, and infirmity of human nature was deified and adored in Athens. But for all their apparent interest in the divine, no God was found by them who could put an end to their searching. Throughout their city, they had altars set up to the unknown gods. Whatever they thought these altars were, they were certainly testimonies to their own ignorance of true divinity. They had not found the one God who could end their searching, the one God by whose glory and goodness they would willingly abolish all their idols. They had not found him, and they admitted as much by their unknown God altars. But here's the wonderful thing. A messenger of the king of heaven and earth has been sent to Athens, not to buy a hoagie, not to try a rap, but to proclaim Christ to them. Look at verse 23. Paul begins his preaching in Athens by saying, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, focus on those final words. This I proclaim to you. Paul presents himself as a man of conviction and authority. He knows what they do not know. He knows God. And he is now imitating God in that he is going to speak words of truth and grace to a people under the rule of lies and condemnation. That's exactly what the true and living God has done in sending his son, Jesus Christ. A word sent in your flesh to a people living under lies and condemnation. And now the ministry of that living word who is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, that ministry of the living word continues through his apostle. So what Paul is now going to do in Athens is exactly what Christ did for Paul on the road to Damascus. Acts 9, the risen Christ spoke into the dominion of darkness ruling over Paul. Christ did not wait for Paul to figure out the truth of things on his own. He interrupted. Christ brought the truth to Paul, gave Paul understanding. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, 
will now imitate Christ. He will proclaim the God of creation and the God of redemption, who are one and the same God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who is empowering this work now in Athens and will gather some harvest from it. So Paul does not come. Notice this, and I'm still working off of the final words, the final five words of verse 23. Paul does not come with some kind of fake humility, placing himself underneath the Athenians to be their student. Nor does he place himself alongside the Athenians as a fellow struggler, groping in the dark with them. No, Paul places himself before them as a messenger from God, a herald of the king, an ambassador of good news, who once did not know God himself, but by grace has come to know God and now desires to make God known to others, extending and advancing the kingdom of grace. But Paul shows us even more with that little sentence, that little phrase, this I proclaim to you. He shows us, beloved, the necessity of special revelation. The necessity of special revelation for the salvation of sinners. Gerhardus Voss said, Nature cannot unlock the door of redemption. What does unlock the door? God must speak a gracious word to us, a special word. God must reveal more to us than he has already revealed to us in the created order for us sinners to become saved. What God has revealed in the created order is called general revelation. Psalm 19, verse 1, general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. General revelation is always on. General revelation, because it is from God, is infallible. But man, being sinful, suppresses the truth of general revelation because of our sinful commitment to unrighteousness. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 1. We pretend that what is revealed about God in the created order is not really there. We push it out of the way because we do not want to bow the knee. We do not want to obey God. We do not want to put aside a life of sin. So we suppress general revelation in our unrighteousness. But it is infallibly hitting us every day and night in the ears, in the eyes, on the skin, in the home. So general revelation, it is sufficient for something. It is sufficient to condemn us. It is sufficient to leave us without excuse before God. But it is insufficient to save us. So Paul is not going to tell the Athenians to keep looking for God. He's not going to say, hey, perhaps you guys should go look in the ocean. Or perhaps you should go look in the stars. Hey, why don't you guys invent the microscope? Invent the telescope. And I am in no way making fun of people who work behind microscopes 
or work behind telescopes. Keep working behind them. But men are not going to come to know the true and living God through general revelation. Paul tells them something quite different. He says, you have been looking. That has not worked. You were right to look, but you refused to find. Now I proclaim to you what you have not found. And what special revelation does Paul go on to proclaim? He proclaims that the God of all creation, the God of all history, the God of all redemption is one and the same God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is now this glorious God. He is now receiving all who repent of their sins and seek forgiveness and reconciliation through this mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the living one who has the keys of death and Hades. Take shelter in him, and you will have no fear now and no fear forever. This is the special revelation Paul is proclaiming to the Athenians. This is good news. Now, special revelation is an act and a communication of sovereign grace. Scripture and its promises are special revelation. Christ himself is the special revelation of God. That is not observable by general revelation. It must be proclaimed. And so Paul is sent to do it. Now let's go on in our passage and hear again verses 24 and 25. Paul begins to proclaim the good news of salvation. And look where he begins. He begins with cosmology. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul has just proclaimed a very simple cosmology. The living and true God has made the world. He has made you Athenians. He has made the sun that warms your skin. He has made the water that cools your body and hydrates you to another day. He has made the night. He has made everything in it. Paul has a very simple cosmology that asserts the primacy of God in the existence of every material thing. Paul is setting the table for the Athenians. He's clearing the table of all the crazy ideas that they have put upon it and making it very simple. God is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, Paul is, of course, in accord with all the other scriptures. Perhaps this one is most profoundly helpful to us for where Paul's preaching ends. In John chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Speaking of Christ, 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul is in exact accord with the apostolic teaching on the creation. He himself writes to the Romans in chapter 11, verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is in accord with the apostolic teaching, and you can go to Isaiah 66 and Psalm 146 and so many, of course, other scriptures in the Old Testament that confirm that Paul is not only setting before them a Hebraic view of all material things, but he's setting before them a simple cosmology that God and his Son are the creator. Now, why is Paul saying this? He tells us right away in verse 24 and 25. Because God has created all things, he is not dependent upon any created thing for his own existence or even his own happiness or his own blessedness. God is blessed within himself. Not only does God have life in himself, uncreated, that's called divine aseity, he has life within himself, God is blessed in himself. He needs nothing from man to have his mood adjusted. God is always perfectly blessed, perfectly happy. The pagan worship of the Athenians does nothing to change God's disposition towards sin and does nothing to change God's disposition towards sinners. God's disposition towards sinners is revealed in the giving of his own son to be a substitute under the wrath and curse due to them. So here's Paul's simple argument in 24 and 25. God's existence, God's mood, God's happiness does not depend on the creatures who serve him. Now, you can pick up that there's some Athenian idolatry still in the modern world. Whenever you hear somebody say, you know what, I better go to church, it's Easter. I better go to church, it's Christmas. And they are C&E churchgoers. They are revealing an Athenian view of the cosmos and of creation and of God. That God can be adjusted by something we perform on his behalf. We will cheer him up towards us. We will garnish his favor towards us because we have done something for him. That is a kind of Athenian idolatry. Beloved, Christian faith declares that Christ has done everything to satisfy God toward you. It is finished. You now walk in gratitude, not a performance to move God towards you, to get him cheered up about you. So Paul is slowly undoing some of the things that they have believed. <clears throat> Let me move on then to verse 26 through 28. He has just given a simple cosmology, declaring God to be the Lord of creation. Now he declares God to be the Lord of history. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God 
and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And we'll come to 28 in a moment. Here, the apostle has just declared something that is going to find its fulfillment in what he declares down in 30 and 31. He has just declared in verse 26 that God made every nation of mankind from one man. Who is that one man? Adam the first. Adam is that one man who is father of all nations. Beloved, you can with great confidence, with apostolic friendship, declare to the people that you might think are the furthest from God in the modern world that all the nations of the earth have been made from one man by one God. There is a solidarity in the race of men. We are all leveled together under the posterity of this one man. This little sentence from Paul in Athens will go on like a snowball rolling down a mountain, and it will become bigger and bigger through history. And this little sentence will become that which begins to undo a deep-seated racism and elitism in the nations of the earth that all come from one man who has been who have been created by one God. And Paul is saying this so that when he finishes his sermon and says there is one man who has been appointed to judge the whole race of men, Adam II, he shows the unity between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. That under one man, the race fell into sin and death and condemnation. And under a second singular man, the race is lifted out of sin and death and condemnation. The Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 26 that Paul says that the Lord has not only made every nation from one man, the Lord has determine the periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He is the Lord of history. As Ole Hallisby, the Lutheran pastor, said, yes, we meet the Lord in nature, but we also meet the Lord in history. The Lord has determined himself where we would live, where we would die, when our nation would rise, when our nation would fall. Why has the Lord made such a determination? For this singular purpose, that men who have life and being in God alone would come to seek him, would perhaps come to find him, who is the very source of their life. And this brings us to Paul's perhaps more weighty and interesting argument in Athens. He says in verse 27, these boundaries and these dwelling places are all for men to seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And then he adds, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul is simply urging the Athenians now, to let him finish. 
He's saying, let me explain to you why I am here and why you are here. You have been created to find your creator, he tells the Athenians. You have been created to find your creator. The purpose for your existence is to know the one who's given you existence. And if I am here as a messenger to aid you, to assist you, to help you, to plead with you, to know your creator, then do not silence me. Do not shush me. Do not laugh me off the stage. Let me do right now before you on the Areopagus that for which you have been created, to come to know God. Our good brother in the faith, in fact, our father in the faith, John Calvin, makes the point that there is no corner of the world that is to be void of the testimony of God's glory. In every small nation, great nation, every rich nation or poor nation, the Lord has a purpose there for men to find him from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And even here among the Athenians, a place that you would think no gospel minister minister should spend more than a day. You should never think that. This is the very place a gospel minister should spend several days. Now, there's something very interesting. What is Paul saying in verse 27 when he says that men might feel their way toward God and find him? Is the Apostle Paul exalting, lifting up, honoring the natural man's abilities to find God? Is Paul saying something other than what I just said earlier about the ability of general revelation to bring a man to saving faith in Christ? Paul, in fact, is not saying anything different. What Paul is recognizing before the Athenians in verse 27 and he's going to do so in verse 28 with quotes from their own poets. What he is recognizing and affirming before them is that they, having been created by God, have an innate interest and seeking of God. They cannot escape the memory of who created them. They cannot shake it. Calvin called this the sensus divinitatis the divine sense or the sense of the divine, that this is imprinted and stamped in everyone who has drawn their life from God. Everyone has this, though everyone outside of Christ suppresses this. But everyone has it, and everyone knows that they are a creature. Everyone knows, beloved, get this, that God exists. Romans 1 says it clearly. Though they knew God, they did not honor him. The census divinitatis is stamped on the conscience and soul and body of every human being. But because we suppress it in unrighteousness, it leaves us groping in the dark for divine things. And we come away with a mess like the Athenians. Paul is not scolding them for their search of the divine, but he's agreeing with them that they are ignorant. 
that it has failed, that they need to repent. In his Institutes, John Calvin, speaking of the census divinitatis, says that there exists in the human minds and indeed by natural instinct some sense of deity we hold to be beyond dispute since God himself to prevent any man from pretending ignorance has endured all men with some idea of his Godhead, the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges, that all to a man being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker may be condemned by their own conscience when they neither worship him nor consecrate their lives to his service. So let's understand. Paul is not advocating this thing that some have called unconscious Christianity. There are, there are doctors of theology today who are even saying that if you are sincere and devoted to your deity, even though it may be a pagan one and a wrong one, your sincerity and devotion will be translated through Christ to God the Father, and you will be saved. Paul is no advocate of that. He is confirming to the Athenians their ignorance, that all of their searching for God has not brought them to know God. They need a messenger, a herald, a man with beautiful feet to come in their midst and tell them that which they would not otherwise find. Cornelius Van Til, in an excellent essay, takes the new man, old man language of Paul, and he inverts it to work out an illustration of what Paul is doing in Athens. And Van Til's inverted illustration, he says, every man's old man is the man who knows God who knows that they were created by one God, who know that they owe this one God their life, who know that they will have to give an account for him at the end of history. That's every man has the memory of this old man. But the new man is the sinful fallen man. The new man suppresses what the old man remembers and doesn't want to hear from the old man and tries to stuff a sock in the old man. And Hill goes on to say, We must appeal to the old man, not because there's life in him, but because the Lord has left his image on the old man. And when the Lord is pleased to open the ears of the dead, that old man will hear the appeal that there is indeed a living God who has given us his son to reconcile the lost sons to him. Let us continue then. In verse 28, we receive two quotations from two different poets. These are two ancient poets of Athens who all the Athenians would recognize, Aratus and Epimedes. Again, some have looked at verse 28 and said, look what Paul's doing. He's finding common ground between pagans and Christianity. That is not what Paul is doing. What Paul is doing, beloved, is he is quoting from their own poets and saying, look at your own poets, 
have told you that you should search for God. Now, Paul would not say, here, look at your poets told you you would find him. And so, yes, fall down before Zeus and worship him. In fact, both of those quotes from those Greek poets in verse 28 are actually about Zeus. If you go and read the context, Paul is not changing the God whom the poet was writing about. He's fine with that being about Zeus. He is making a different point in the recitation. He's saying, your own poets have told you that the most important thing in life is to seek after God. So listen to me. I'm here talking to you about the most important thing in life. Don't refuse me because you want to talk about something else. That's why he's bringing their own poets in. It is often the case that even the poets of the pagans end up benefiting them by scolding them about their paganism. Many Greek philosophers, Cicero, for example, told the Athenians that they were struck with madness for how much they worshipped at temples and altars. Yet Cicero himself would go and worship at altars and temples. This inconsistency was legendary, but in the midst of it, there were comments that were helpfully true for those who have been stamped with the image of God. Augustine makes a similar point in his book, The Confessions. Augustine writes, as he's narrating his childhood, he talks about the education he received. He says, traditional education taught me that Jupiter punishes the wicked with his thunderbolts, and yet Jupiter commits adultery himself. The two roles are quite incompatible. Augustine goes on in other places in the Confessions and shows that the pagan philosophers undermined paganism. And that's what Paul is doing in citing these poets. He's showing the Athenians that they have not even lived up to the urgency that their own philosophers have pressed upon them to seek after God. Therefore, let the apostle speak. And they will soon quiet him, of course. But he goes on in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now the Apostle Paul is pressing them to deal with God in his purity and not through the agency and mediation of all the things that they have built with their hands. All the altars, all the temples, he's saying, let us reckon with God and his word and his works, not with man and his words and his works. And then in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I spoke about this verse last time we were in this chapter. I simply am going to add tonight, or excuse me, this morning, that here Paul is announcing not only the urgency of the Athenians to repent of their sins, he is announcing that they are now living in a season of mercy. For repentance to be still open to them, with Christ having risen to his throne, 
means they are under a canopy of grace right now, where the good news is still being offered to them, where the gates have not yet been shut, where the doors have not yet been locked. It is a season of repentance, and the Athenians must repent of every wrong idea they have held about God that Paul has just undone in this speech. They must repent of those false notions of God, and they must come to God through Jesus Christ, who is the judge at the end of history. Verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Why was this man who has been raised dead? This, of course, we have heard in Paul's preaching in the cities before Athens. Christ has been dead, put to death, crucified as a substitute offering for sinners. He has become a curse for us who were cursed. He has borne in his own body the judgments due to you and to me for our sin. And he has answered completely, fully, and perfectly the judgments of God against sinners in himself, and therefore he has been honored and raised from the dead, being the Son of God. And he shall indeed be the one whom all men meet from all nations. Through all times, they will all meet this one man at the end of history and give an account for their righteousness to him. Because the interest of his judgment on that final day will be the interest of righteousness. Have we done what is right? Have we been what is right? Are we right before God? Are we right before men? This will be the question of the day of judgment. And beloved, How will we know if we are right? How will we know if we who are men, most broadly speaking, men and women, mankind, human beings, how will we know if we who have been born of women, who have been ambulatory upon the earth, who have breathed in and out, who have said a million words, who have reached out with our hands 10,000 times, how will we know that with this humanity we are righteous on that day when we stand before the judge of righteousness? Oh, how blessedly easy the answer is. We will know, and we can know even now, that we are righteous because he who wears our flesh, he who wears our nature, he who became what we were so we could become what he is, he has been raised, vindicated, acknowledged and acquitted in the righteousness of humanity. He is our righteousness. All our righteousness is stored up at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. This is the great joy and treasure of all who have run into the shelter high tower of Jesus Christ. 
not only do we have the righteousness required of God in all matters of the law, we have the righteousness required of God in all matters of sonship. Praise be to God. We are the sons of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask and pray for your help and blessing upon our hearing of your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to send forth your messengers into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to announce to men who are groping in darkness as they labor under that memory that they have indeed come from you, have their life in you. Lord, we pray that you would grant us to have the wisdom and courage to announce to them who made them, from whence they have come, before whom they shall appear. Oh, Lord, we pray that your church would not shrink back from these duties. We pray, Father God, that you would grant those who hear these good things to hear them with true hearing, hear them unto believing. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.